If you have your Bibles, though, take them and turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 11. And uh, I'm going to read the first nine verses of Genesis 11. And that will be our theme and our text for this morning, Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. They should be very familiar verses to you. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build a tower or build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language and there is, this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they might not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the whole earth. We talk from time to time about world views. A worldview is how you make sense of the world in which you live how you understand why there is something and not nothing, how you make sense of human nature and what takes place in this world. There are a lot of worldviews out there. I have come to conclude, and I know many of you have, that the worldview that's presented in the Bible is unique. But I also find the worldview of the Bible to be the most coherent. It's the one that makes the most sense. It's the one that answers the big questions of life, all of them together, in a way that ties them all together, that makes more sense than any other worldview that's presented out there. And you come to Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11, and that is a worldview. It gives us the history of humankind. It tells us where humans came from. It tells us why the world is as it is. It tells us why the world has gone the way it has. It tells us how God has worked in the world that he has made. And it tells us what is the prospects for the world. It's a very unique picture. And as I said, one you will never get in a science room or in a philosophy room or in a world religions room. It is entirely unique. As we come to these verses that I read this morning, these are the end or the wrap-up of this whole worldview. And if I had time to have read the whole of this section, Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, you would have seen how it fits together. There's a sense in which when you come to this particular portion of Scripture, it's deja vu. It's, oh, here we go again. Oh, we've been there before. We've seen that. We've done that. There's familiar actions of people. There's familiar responses to God. The connections with the Garden of Eden, the connections with Genesis chapter 1, the connections with Genesis chapter 6, the connections with Genesis chapter 9 are very clear and very strong. And so as we come to then chapter 11, it's this conclusion, it's this wrapping up 
of God's description to us of human history, of where we came from, why it is the way that we are, and where we would end up if God had not intervened and does not intervene in our lives. As we come to this text, there's really three things that I want to talk about, um, and they all revolve around uh, each of the three times that that phrase, come let us, is used in these first nine verses. And uh, the first is simply uh, foolish choices or drift that takes place in humankind, and not in just in humanity in general, but in each of our human hearts uh, together. We make choices, and often those choices are foolish, or those choices are, are, are not necessarily deliberately sinful acts, but they're choices that when you study the intent and the motive of them, they're choices that clearly evidence uh, moving away from God, a moving away from what God wants and what God has said. And so as we start this chapter, God reaffirms, and on your own, you can go and just in those nine verses, underline every time it speaks of the whole earth or the whole world. Um, uh, This is a description of the whole world. This is a reminder of all of humanity. And so uh, Moses begins by sort of summarizing this all by saying, now the whole earth, that's everyone on the earth. That's, that's not just a band of people that live in, in such and such a country or a band of people that live on the, 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 the African continent. The whole earth had one language and one vocabulary. That's astounding to consider that. It'd be fascinating for me just to take five minutes and say, okay, let's write down every language that is spoken in this congregation on a board. And to realize how diverse our language is, actually. But at one time, that was not the case. At one time, the whole earth had a single language with a single vocabulary. That's significant. Think for a moment what that would be like. Could you imagine how easy that would make travel? You wouldn't need Google, whatever it's called, translate. You wouldn't need these little pocket books. You wouldn't need to go to Italy and tap somebody on the shoulder and say, me speaking English, you Italiano, how do I order on the restaurant? It just would be so much easier. And you wouldn't have these instances where somebody has a word in their language, but there's no direct translation in your language. And there's, well, what does that really mean? Well, what words would you use? Or how do I get the nuances of that? There'd be none of that confusion. We would simply know what people meant when they use words, because we all spoke the same language and had the same vocabulary. It's stunning to think of that, that that was the situation of the world at one point. Now, unity of that kind can be both good and bad. Unity of that sort can be used for good purposes, and it can be used for evil purposes. Think of the organizations in our world right now that are striving for worldwide unity on economics or on health or on um, whether we be capitalists or whether we be communists. There, There is a push for unity around our world and it's a unity that in by and large is a dangerous unity. Think about unity around moral values. Can you think if we all had to believe the same things about right or wrong, if our world led that charge, how chaotic and how evil our world would be? 
But that was the state of the world at one point. Human history, one language, one vocabulary. And so it says then, as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. There's subtle decisions that are made now by people on the earth at that time, which are dangerous and which at the very least are foolish. Temptations to sin, as you know, often come on the heels of a foolish decision. We make a foolish decision which is just unwise, um, careless, thoughtless, um, not always intentional, but we make a decision and, and we find ourselves in moving away from God, moving away from the, the will of God, and all, all of a sudden, on the heels of that foolish decision is a very clear opportunity for sin. And we see that as we line these things up. The very first words are encouraging. It says they migrated. That's what they were supposed to do. God had told the people, he had told Adam and Eve, fill the earth, uh, multiply on the earth, and fill the earth. To Noah, he said, multiply and fill the earth and spread out across the earth. The intention of God was that his people, his creation, those made in his image, would not settle in a particular spot, but they would spread out to the four corners of the earth. And so here we see them doing it. They spread, they migrated. They were doing a good thing. But already there's a hint that their migration was not only a geographical migration, but it was a spiritual migration. That in their moving out, they were moving away from God. In the book of Genesis, eastward movement, eastward direction is never a good thing. It's always presented in a negative light. It's always uh, an indication of the heart and an indication of one's relationship with the Lord. And you say, well, what's the big deal? They were moving eastward or they were going east. So what? Well, when you look at these cases, first time you see this is in Genesis 3.24. You might recall that in Genesis 3.24, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. They were driven out of the garden. They were driven out of the garden east away from the presence of God. Then you come to Genesis 4, 16, and you find Cain being driven away from the presence of God, and he went east. And then you read in Luke chapter 12, or Luke chapter 13, where Abraham and Lot, are, their, 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 their herdsmen are fighting because there's not enough uh, food and fields for their cattle. And so Lot says, well, listen, whatever way you want to go, Lot, I'll go the other way. Lot chose to go east towards Sodom and Gomorrah, away from the presence of God. You read later in Genesis 26 of Abraham as he is dividing his family up and he takes the children that are the result of his relationship with concubines and he wants to remove them from Isaac and from their influence on Isaac and he sends them east. So there's a subtle hint here that their direction is not only a geographical decision, but it's a spiritual decision. There's something in their thinking that they want to leave God behind. Remember Jonah. What did Jonah do? His direction indicated his heart. God had told him, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, no, I'm going to go to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction. 
And so the direction of his travel said something about the intention of his heart. God's desire was that, yes, we scatter across the earth. God's desire is that we multiply and fill the earth. God's desire is that there be population growth. God is for a population increase on this earth. It is God's will that we multiply and fill the earth. It is man and woman who suppress population. It is men and women who look for means of disobeying God and promoting abortion or promoting made ways of limiting or decreasing population in direct defiance to God who says multiply and fill the earth. It says, and then we come to another choice. Come, let us make, or no, sorry. They found a valley and they settled in it. The valley of Shinar, they settled in there. The word is very clear, a strong word. They settled there. Settling is the exact opposite, isn't it, of scattering or dispersing. So there's a hint here that they're hesitating in their obedience to God. God had told them to scatter and spread across the face of the earth. They settled. Now, in and of itself, the settling is not the issue. It's why did you settle? The third point or the third indication of a foolish decision is they said, come, let us make bricks. Burn them thoroughly. They had Brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Make bricks. I got the story wrong and I've got it mixed up in my head now because I'm going to make a mistake. Three pigs, right? The three pigs, they were trying to be protected from the wolves. And they made three different kinds of houses. It was the final house they made out of bricks. And the wolf came along and he huffed and he puffed and he couldn't blow the house down. Point being, there was security, there was strength, there was permanence in the house that had been built with bricks. And so in the same sense, their decision to make bricks and to begin to build a city and a tower was a desire for permanence. It was a desire for security. It's again, not that cities are a bad thing, but cities of men are a bad thing. Abraham, when he was called out of the Ur of Chaldees, it describes him again and again moving, living a nomadic, nomadic life, living in tents. And one of the things it says about him was that he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking for a city. He wasn't wanting to build a city. He was looking for a city who has foundations of which the designer and the builder is God. Cities of men are almost always negatively spoken of in the Bible. Places of pride, places where the opportunities for sin are magnified because you have a great group of people coalesced in a small place. Cities are described as places that are full of idols. And where is the gospel sent out in the New Testament again and again? God sends people to cities. Why? Because cities are lost. Because cities need the gospel. Because the people who dwell in the cities need to be called back to a relationship with God. And so it's not the fact that 
there are cities that is necessarily wrong. It's the fact that our city is the city of God and not the city of man. And so they settled there and they built bricks for a city. What are the indications in your life that you're moving away from God? Do you ever think of that? I think these are indications that humanity as a whole was moving away from God. Their eastward direction, their settling down, their desire for permanence on their own. So what are indications that you or others are moving away from God? I, I thought of three general ones, and I find them in my life. One of them is I read my Bible less and less. I don't want to hear from God. I don't want to hear him bother my conscience. I don't want to have the word of God constrain me. I want to have the word of God restrain me. I don't want to have the word of God direct me. I've got other things to read. I've got other places to go. I've got other things that are a priority. And so I leave off reading the word of God. A second indication that I'm moving away from God is my commitment to the Lord's day. You know, I'd say, here you go, Paul. You're just trying to toot your own horn so that you can have a full church every Sunday. I, you know what? That's not my concern at all. My concern is the Bible says the people gather together on the first day of the week. The Bible does tell us don't forsake the gathering together of the brethren. There is such a push and a pull to, to make the Lord's Day optional, to have other priorities, things that are more important, things, events that come along and say, well, I can pass the Lord's Day this time. It doesn't really matter. But there is a a, a heart issue that takes place. There is a direction that is being shaped in our lives when the Lord's Day becomes decreasingly less important in our life. And the third one would be the people of God. Do I not really care if I have connection and interaction with the people of God? The people of God shape me. The people of God protect me. The people of God encourage me. The people of God pray for me. But when I find my connections being less and less with the people of God and more and more with the people of the world, that should be a reminder, an inclination in my heart that I'm moving away from the Lord. That I'm making decisions that if I'm not careful will lead to clear sin. The second thing that we see then is that that direction, those foolish decisions are sinful decisions. It's confirmed in verse 4. You can't miss the intention that's described in verse 4. It's not veiled. It's not secretive. It's not sort of under the surface. It is on the surface for you to read in what they were thinking when they decided to do what they do. Come. Let us build a city and a tire, uh, tower for ourselves whose top reaches the heavens. There's an intention there of why they're settling there and why they're building that city. And then the second thing, let us make a name for ourselves. That's a clear intention. And that's a sinful intention. And the third one is, very clearly, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You read those, you know, what's it? well, no, those are clearly stating the intention and the motive of their heart. They want to build a city tower. Whether or not this is what it looks like, this is certainly just one illustration of it. Some people describe it just as a tower. 
Other people, though, describe it as a place where people would dwell, where they would, they would, they would bring the separation between the heavens and the earth together, where they would bring the distinction between God and man closer together. And they would live in that environment. And really what, it, what their intention was, was to achieve equality with God. They wanted to achieve this sort of, I, I want to be in God's domain. I want to be like God. In fact, I want to have God's place in this world. I want to be in charge of it, and I want to be there. But the Bible says, no, there is a distinction. Heaven is where God is, and earth is where man is. And there is a great difference between God and man. And man will never become God. Although we all want to be God. I think I can remember a picture of Shirley MacLaine walking on a beach, hands raised, I am God. Oh, really? But we want to be God's. We want to control our destinies. We want to control our lives. We want to determine our own course. We don't want anybody else telling us what to do. We want, at the very least, equality with God. The second thing that they say, which is clearly sinful, is let us make a name for ourselves. That's the inclination of human heart. I want to supplant God. I don't just want to be equal with God. I want to supplant God. It's not his name that matters. It's not his glory that matters. It's me that matters. It's my name that matters. It's my glory that matters. And to make a name for yourself is not, well, I just want Paul to be known. It's, well, no, I, I want Paul and all his works. I want Paul and all his glory. I want people to look at Paul and what he does and what he says and say, wow, what a great name that is. That's what we, we strive for when we don't have God in our life. It's all about us. It's centered about our name, our accomplishment, our pride. And the goal, again, is to supplant God, to set aside his name and replace it with ours, to say, look at me. But do we not realize that the moment you die, all your accounts are canceled, your Instagram, your social pages, your emails, and you begin to evaporate? And then what happens to your name? And yet we're consumed with our names. Social media, it's all pictures about me. Look at what I've made. Look at what I'm making. Look at what I'm building. Look at what I've done. And there's a subtleness to that. The king of Babylon was one day out walking on a plateau and he says is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for my glory the glory of my majesty look at me look at what I've done look at what I've accomplished and God was gracious to Nebuchadnezzar after a period of judgment where he said no you have what you have because of my hand upon you you are what you are because I have set you there for this time in this place. Pride is such a brutal thing in our lives. And it rears its ugly head in the most strangest of places and circumstances. Proverbs 27.2 says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth. 
a stranger and not your own lips. What great words to attach to our workspace, to put in our car, to put on our bank account, to put on our clothes closet, whatever it might be. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. Our ambition in life is not to make a name for ourselves. Our ambition in life is to magnify the name of God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's a psalmist says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be over all of the earth. My glory matters nothing. My name is such a fleeting, fleeting reality. It's God's name, God's glory, God's power, God's works, God's ways, God's character that we ought to elevate and magnify and exalt. But notice the third thing in that text. It says, let's do all of this. Let's build this city and tower or this city tower and let's make a name for ourselves. Why? Lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Not only were they intent on pursuing equality with God, not only were they desiring to supplant God, but they also wanted to thwart God's word to them. This is very similar to Eve and the temptation that came to her. Has God really said? The command of God to Noah and to humankind was absolutely clear. You be fruitful and multiply increasingly on the earth and multiply on it. The command of God to humankind that he had made was to spread out across the face of the earth. To trust him, to walk with him, to believe that wherever he led them, wherever he sent them, he would provide for them. He would keep them safe. He would, he would, he would keep them secure. But they said, no. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do what God tells me to do. It's a very, very dangerous place to be in your life. Where you have a clear word of God and in defiance you say, I'm not going to do that. This is what the people did. And this is not only reflected of the whole world, loved ones, though it's reflected of the tendency of our hearts. This is what the scripture in the first 11 chapters is wanting to say. This is the human problem. This is the problem of all humankind. This is why Genesis 10 is so important. We all come from the same place. We all trace our origins back to one of three boys who are from one father who traces his origin back to Adam. doesn't matter where you go in the world. The problem is the same. It doesn't matter who you talk to. Their heart problem is the same. It doesn't matter what corner of the earth you go to. The issue is still my rebellion against God and my desire to do my own thing and my desire to supplant God, to, to suppress God, to replace God. This is the problem of the human heart. Come to verses 5 to 9, 
And you have God undoing the actions of humankind. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had made. By no means, don't conclude that somehow God was distracted with other things, that there was a planet that was messing up and he needed to go and deal with it, or the rivers weren't flowing over here, and or is tired and having a nap. It's not at all what this is saying. It's not an oops, I forgot about those people. I better go see what they're up to. God is not like that. The Bible describes, and we could read verse after verse, verse after verse, verse where God is in heaven and he sees the actions of every man, woman, boy, and girl. And not only does he see our actions, but he knows our intent and our motive. God is not caught off guard. God is not unsure. God is not lacking knowledge as as though something's taking place that, um, that he has to go and find out about and investigate. This is just a, a way of saying that God is interested in his world. God is on top of his world. And there is nowhere that you can flee from God's presence. And what did God see? When he came down, what did he see? Well, it says, behold... They are one people, and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Do you think God's afraid? Do you think God is saying, oh no, what have I done? I've given them all the same language, and they all have the same vocabulary. What is going to go on here? I better go deal with this. Do you think that's what's going on, that God is afraid that somehow humanity has gotten out of control and he needs to rein them in so that he has control of stuff again? Not at all. God is not threatened by human unity. God desires human unity. God wants to bring all people from every nation into one group of people where we love one another and get along with one another and serve one another and through serving one another, serve God. That is God's desire that we be united and unified from all corners of this earth. But there's a difference between unity for good and unity for evil. And when you get evil hearts uniting together in increasing numbers, you have a greater potential for evil. God's concern as he looks upon humanity here is that they are on a bad track. It's not that, 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 that he's concerned about what they'll build. He's concerned about where their heart will go. He says, you get them all together, all in the same place, all thinking the same way, and there is no end to the evil that they will figure out. There is no end to the sinful paths that they will find. There is no stopping the rebellion in their heart. It's a Genesis 6 moment where God looks down and he says, he, 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 in Genesis 6, he, he describes the situation there as, 
The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is what God wants to stop. It's a, it's a work of grace where God says, no, I'm going to stop it here so that they don't become irredeemable, so that they don't become so hardened in their sin and rebellion. God was not concerned for himself. He was concerned for mankind. Do you see this in, in our world and in your own life? Have you noticed how you, you can take one step into sin, and you, you might think it a little sin, but all of a sudden it opens up all possible opportunities for a whole bunch more sins that you never thought of. And you get together with a group of sinners, and you can come up with some pretty sinful things. You get together with a group of evil minds, and before you know it, and by evil I just mean rebellious minds, before you know it, you are devising things that are really, really bad. You read Proverbs chapter 1 and this invitation to get together with this group of rebels and they come to this young man. They say, come join with us and we will do such and such and such. In the same way that when you get together with like-minded people for good, your propensity to increasing good grows and your love for right and your love for good and your love for helping grows. This is why friendships are so important. It matters. Not just for your kids, but for you. Who do you hang out to? Who you have the most affinity with? Who do you get along with most? You get along with those that when you get together, you find yourselves going down some strange paths. Or when you get together, you find yourselves going down things that glorify God and bring glory and honor to God. Now this confusing of their language is a gracious blow of God. To say, I will not let them go to the depths of which their evil heart will take them if it's unrestrained. And so God comes down and confuses their language. This is an extraordinary miracle of God. Think about it for a moment. What, what would have to have taken place for God to all of a sudden take however many I'm convinced there were millions of people on the earth at this time already. It's easy to do the population statistics and find out that's very possible. But to take them and all of a sudden, boof, you guys are speaking Italian, you guys are speaking German, you guys are speaking gibberish. <laughs> but he, could, and he did that. And, and you knew the same vocabulary. And you knew the same language. But you didn't have a clue what these people were saying or the words they were uttering. It just sounded like babble. Babbling. God did that in an instant. The power of God, loved ones, is stunning. I mean, you read in the scripture of God, um, of an uh, army that is coming to get together against a people, and God puts something in their minds so that they all of a sudden are fearful and think they're hearing something, and an army of hundreds of thousands goes running. This is our God. But in his mercy and in his grace and by his great might and power, he says, this is how I will prevent them from reaching the depths of evil 
that is so destructive. What a gracious blow of God. Have you ever had the intervening hand of God in your life? Have you ever all of a sudden been going down a path and bam! It's like the rug is pulled out from under your feet and, and you, you don't know what hits you, but it stops you from going further. It, it might be you're, you're driving to go somewhere and your car breaks down and all of a sudden you can't get to where you were going to go. Because if you had got there, it would have been a really bad thing for you. Maybe it's a decision that you were going to make with money, which was evil or wrong, and God makes that transaction fall through. Learn to look at the restraining hand of God as a grace that prevents you from going headlong into a direction that will bring about your destruction and your hurt. So the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. God accomplished what he originally commanded them to do in his own way. They wouldn't go, so he said, no, you're going to go. And off they went and God spread them out all over the earth. And it's fascinating that the name of the city was Babel, which is Babylon. And the scripture describes Babylon as the mother of prostitutes and of the birthplace of all the earth's abominations. Babylon the Great, the mother of all the prostitutes and all the filthy practices of the earth. Cities where people want nothing to do with God trace their roots all the way back to Babylon. All the crazy religions that have grown, all the filthy practices of mankind find their roots in Babylon. And one day God is going to destroy Babylon. In Revelation chapter 18 and 19. But you see where we've come then? Bring this all together. I, I hope this makes sense to you. Where we are, we've come full circle. And God is saying, look, this is the history of humankind. This is why there's a world. This is why there are men and women. This is what's gone wrong with men and women. This is what happened once and I destroyed the whole world in judgment. This is what happened a second time and I was gracious to the world. But humankind left to themselves will be self-destructive. And I am so glad that we don't end at Genesis 11, verse 9. That, that would be disastrous. If the Bible ended at Genesis 11, 9, we would be without hope. And we would say, God, you're a liar. Because in Genesis 3, 15, God says, no, no. I am going to crush the serpent's head. See, behind all of this evil, behind all of this wickedness, behind all of this sinfulness, is Satan working to destroy God's beautiful creation, most clearly seen in male and female. And in verse 10 of chapter 11, it says, these are the generations of Shem. 
And you follow that and you come to verse 27, and these are the generations of Terah. And to Terah was born Abraham. And to Abraham, God made a promise that he would bless Abraham. And in blessing Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And from Abraham came David. And from David came Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who takes our dark, hardened, evil, wayward heart and replaces it with a soft heart with a heart that has an inclination to God. Oh, thank God for Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, and the salvation that God now works out so that we who have a proclivity to evil can now have a proclivity to good. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I know it might sound strange to some, but if you think it through, it makes sense. It's another worldview, I get it. But every worldview requires faith. Every understanding of why there is something and not nothing requires faith, because none of us were there. Science can't prove it. Philosophy can't prove it. But we believe that your word is true and right and that you have told us how this world came to be, why this world is the way it is, and what you have done to redeem it. And it makes sense if we would but submit our reason to the presentation of the facts. So God, for any who are trying to sort this out here today, Father, would they submit their reason to what is reasonable Father, would they look to your word and say, yeah, that makes sense. And if it makes sense for explaining the reason of why the world is as it is and why they are as they are, then it also follows that your solution and your Savior, Jesus Christ, also makes sense. Drive them to Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.